You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. We move to chapter 2 this morning. We'll be looking at uh, verses 1 through 11. John chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. And on the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan, Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, although the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning that we may be instructed from this passage, a very famous passage of Scripture, a well-known passage. Father, open it, we ask, to our hearts. We ask that you would open our hearts and minds to your word. We pray, Father, that you by way of your Holy Spirit, would do your work of instructing us and changing us, that not only would you give us understanding, but you would cause your word to bear upon our hearts for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I don't know if any of you have heard of uh, Eric Alexander. Has anybody heard of Eric? Some of your heads will be um, Eric Alexander is a English pastor, preacher, who has been blessed by God with really some exceptional abilities, not only to communicate God's Word, but uh, what I find in his preaching is he has the ability to really bring the text to bear upon your heart. I mean, it's, it's one, preaching has one level of, you know, the, 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 in fact, probably the easiest level is to simply explain the text. I, I think the next level is to try to apply the text Uh, Then there's another level where the text is really brought to bear upon your hearts. And I have personally found that Eric Alexander has been very gifted by God to, to, especially in that third category, to take a text and really bring it to bear upon at least my heart as I listen to him. Uh, You can can hear him on the web. uh, uh, Search Eric Alexander MP3 and material will come up and... Uh, some of it's uh, recorded from the 80s, I believe, but uh, you'll be blessed. But commenting on this passage in one of his sermons, 
I heard him say these words, quote, that we can emphasize the things that are peripheral and miss the things that are central and basic to what Jesus is really saying. Now, let me read that again. We can emphasize the things that are peripheral and miss the things that are central and basic to what Jesus is really saying. Now, that's an error that we can, we can find ourselves committing with really every passage of Scripture. But it's an error that we have tendency, we have a tendency to commit, especially with certain passages of Scripture. And I would submit to you we've come to one of those passages this morning where we can really miss it. Um, we commit this error when we make this story to be about how Jesus sanctifies a particular marriage or a particular wedding, if you will. Uh, don't misunderstand me here. Uh, marriage is an institution that God has, has instituted, and it is sacred. And I have stood before congregations and said those words many times as I was officiating uh, weddings. Uh, wedding is sacred. It's, uh, it's the institution of marriage. It's an institution that God has made. I usually say something like this. It's for the benefit of mankind, not only the benefit of a husband and a wife, but for the ben mutual benefit of, of communities and uh, towns and cities and nations. One of the problems that we have in our culture is that marriage has been deteriorating for many, many years. That is one of the problems. One of the problems we have with children, it's one of the problems that we have with our culture. It's that simple. Uh, marriage has been attacked from so many fronts and continues to be attacked. And make no mistake about it, that's intentional. That's the evil one. He knows what he's doing. It's quite intentional. Now, all of those things are true, but they're not at the heart or the center of the text that we've come to uh, this morning. Um, sometimes you'll find marriage pamphlets that are well-intended and and as one author commenting on those pamphlets, he says that, uh, you know, the, this, this particular story is not to give us a sentimental glimpse of what it would be like for Jesus to attend a wedding. I don't know if you follow that or not. It's not to give us a sentimental glimpse of what it would be like for Jesus to attend a wedding. Suppose I was going to make try to make this text speak to that issue, then this morning's sermon might be titled something like, What Happens When Jesus Shows Up at Your Wedding? All right, that would be a misuse of this text. Because we're going to see that's... Listen, again, don't think that I'm saying that we wouldn't want Jesus to show up at a wedding. I'm only speaking, what is this text teaching? We have a lot, of these, a lot of these ideas that we read into the text, and we have to kind of take those out and put those aside so that we can read the text and allow the meaning of the text to come out. Instead of reading in, we want to, uh, reading into the text, we want to draw out of the text. Do you follow me? Alcoholism is such a problem in every culture, not just American culture, every culture, uh, since the Garden of Eden. And, um, of course, there has been concerns 
for many that, you know, teaching from this text could somehow uh, be used to promote drinking and drunkenness. Um, uh, is there, is there, um, are there people at this wedding who've had too much to drink? I, I think there probably was. I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, there's sin everywhere. But again, that is not the text, the purpose of the text. We have a whole bunch of verses that speak to drunkenness. I mean, I can just give you a couple, 1 Corinthians 5.11 and 6.10, Galatians 5.21, Ephesians 5.18. We could go back to Noah uh, after the flood. We could go to Proverbs, a number of cha chapters in Proverbs. We could go on and on and on uh, for those. That is, again, not the central subject of this text. All of this is important, but it's not what this story is about. Now, my purpose in introducing the text this way is so that we'll take these things that we're used to hearing and we're accustomed to hearing about this text and we'll set them aside for a minute so that maybe we can take a fresh look at this text. Does that make sense? Let's take a fresh look at it and, and let's, let's let the Scriptures speak to our hearts this morning. May God speak to our hearts through His Word this morning. If you look at verse 2, you'll notice it starts with a time frame on the third day. And last week I'd made mention that one of the things I find so fascinating about John chapter 1 is that it begins out of eternity before creation. And it ends with four successive days, doesn't it? And that time frame actually continues into chapter 2. On the third day, this would, this would be days uh, 5, 6, and 7. We looked at days 1 through 4 last week. Now we come to days 5, 6, and now we're on day 7. And that's why sometimes, sometimes you'll hear sermons on, on this text that might begin, a sermon might begin at verse 19 of chapter 1 and go all the way through maybe chap, uh, chapter 2, verse 11. And you could, uh, you, could, you could look at this from the vantage point of one week in the ministry of Jesus. It would be very legitimate, actually, uh, if you wanted to do a brief little synopsis of each thing. Uh, but here we come to this seventh day, and you look at verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. There was a wedding at Cana. A small town probably located just north of Nazareth where Jesus was raised. And uh, Mary is there, the mother of Jesus. In verse 2, Jesus is invited. His disciples are invited. And in verse 3, we're told that the wine ran out. And the mother of Jesus said to Jesus, they have no wine. Now, in, in our culture, we might ask, right now, well, what's the big deal? If, if we run out of things, what do we do? We just jump in the car and go to Sparkle or go wherever, probably most in that kind of thing, whatever, in this kind of context, probably whatever's most convenient, and uh, get what we need and no one would know the difference. But this culture is a, a lot different than our culture. And a, in our culture, you have a wedding in the afternoon, a reception in the evening, and, you know, as everyone goes home, the wedding event itself actually is finished, isn't it? But in the ancient Near East, a wedding could go on for seven days. Now, anyone who's had 
the task of planning a wedding. Imagine planning for a wedding that was to go on as long as seven days. And it was the responsibility of the groom to provide for uh, what may be seven days uh, for your guests. And in this culture, what a lot of interpreters, a lot of scholars refer to as a shame culture, uh, it is a a really big no-no to run out of provision, especially wine. It is such a big no-no that actually the groom could find himself in legal trouble with his in-laws because this could bring much, that much shame upon their name. Now, I, I, I developed that so that we will begin to understand the, 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 the situation. You know, Mary is full aware. Okay, this bridegroom, whether he, he didn't have the means, whatever, he just didn't, he didn't plan well or whatever, uh, we've got trouble brewing here. We're running out of wine. Now, what is, what is Mary going to do? There's no mention of Joseph. And I think we can probably safely presume that Joseph has already passed away by this point. And I think we can also safely presume that Jesus has been providing for the family. When there is a problem, what does Mary do? She looks to Jesus. Pretty good idea, isn't it? Here we have a problem. Mary is looking to Jesus. And it's a grave problem. Now, I will confess most of the time I've spent in preparing this message this morning has been in verse 4. And that's where I, when I read this text, that's where I always uh, pause. And maybe you, maybe you have that same experience. Notice how Jesus answers. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Have you ever found that kind of jarring? (laughs) um, Fellas, have you ever referred to your mom that way? If you did, did you? Well, obviously you lived to speak about it, but (laughs) I'm guessing you lost a little bark in the process. (laughs) What are we doing when we arrive at these conclusions? How did, I, how did I begin this message? With the air of reading into the text instead of allowing the text to speak. Why are we jarred? It's because we're bringing 21st century American culture, or I'll confess it was 20th century American culture, into this text. when what we're supposed to be doing is bringing this text to our culture. This one, this one's just, it, it's, it just happens to this particular story all the time. So we have to be really, really careful. Let's start with the woman thing. Now, how, first of all, how do we solve this? How do we, you know, you're studying at home. You know, before I'd, I'd lead us into it, what do we do? Well, we, we want to let the Bible interpret the Bible. 
Let's let the Scriptures speak. The Bible is its best interpreter. You'll hear that phrase once in a while. It's a wise phrase. So how do we do that? Let me show you. For, for the next few minutes, it's going to feel a little bit like a Bible study instead of a sermon, but I, that's okay. I hope that's okay. Uh, but I want to show you something. Look at chapter 4. Just leave with me to chapter 4 and verse 21. And here, Jesus, another famous passage. John's gospel is full of famous passages. Another famous passage. Jesus is with the woman of Samaria. And notice how he addresses her in verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming, etc., etc. Notice how he addresses her. Woman. Same way he's addressing Mary, right? Now, if we continue, let's take a look at chapter 8, verse 10. Here in this passage, we have the woman caught in idolatry. And... John chapter 8, Jesus stood up and said to her, what? Woman? Okay, where are they? Where are they? Now, I think even closer, I think we gain a lot more information about this when we go to John chapter 19 and verse 26. And there Jesus is hanging upon the cross. At some point... While he is hanging on the cross, we are told in verse 26, John 19, 26, Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, and he said to his mother, what? Woman, behold your son. Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And if you look at chapter 20, verse 13, in this context, it's not Jesus speaking, but it's the angels. Mary is standing outside the tomb, weeping. This is Mary Magdalene. And as she's weeping, she sees two angels, verse 12, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said to her, what? Woman. Now, what is this telling us? It's telling us a number of things. One, it's telling us that this is not a rude form of address. This is not a crude form of address. It's, it's, not, it's not harsh. It's formal. It's formal. This is an important part of this, of this passage. I think if we don't grasp this, there's a big part of this we're not going to get. Because what we have Jesus doing here is we have Jesus addressing Mary. And in terms of Jesus' human nature, Mary is his mother. And he is addressing her in a way that is formal. We, one of the reasons all of our texts read the way it does is because we really don't have an English equivalent. You know, the New Testament scholar D.A. Carson suggests that ma'am maybe is the best equivalent that we can come up with. And he points to the social etiquette of the South, how some folks, especially young men, are, are raised to, when they see a woman, to, to uh, approach her with respect and uh, approach her uh, with the word a ma'am. The only problem with that is these same boys are often taught to, to use the same language with their mom. 
So you see, this language doesn't quite get it either. Because the very point is, this is not, it's not that endearing type of address that a loving son expresses towards his, his adoring mom. It's not. It's formal. Now, what is going on here? We ask, what is going on here? What is going on here is Jesus is in the process of redefining his relationship with Mary. That is what is going on here. And notice how he responds. What do we do with that? He says, what does this have to do with me? Uh, Literally, it, it says, what to me and to you? That's what it literally says, what to me and to you? Um, or what, and another, I have a couple translations here. What do you and I have in common concerning this? Or why do you involve me? And what Jesus is using, if we, if we were a little closer to this day, we would understand that this is a Hebrew idiom that is used uh, often to express a rebuke. A rebuke. We have some examples of it in the Old Testament. You don't need to turn there. Uh, but if you want to jot them down, Judges 11, 12 and 2 Samuel 16, 10 would be the verses. Judges 11, 12, 2 Samuel 16, 10, where you'll catch a little bit of this, of this sentiment. Not exactly the same words, but the sentiment of what's going on. And it's a rebuke. Very lovingly, and very courteously and very respectfully, Jesus is actually rebuking Mary at this point in time. Now, why? Why? Well, there's a couple of reasons. There's a couple of reasons. One is it's very possible that Mary is presuming along these family lines to get an inside with Jesus. And there are scores of people today that believe that that type of a connection exists when this text very clearly shows that Jesus is rebuking Mary for taking that line. The relationship between Jesus and Mary is being redefined. Jesus is redefining that relationship. Mary is never named in John's Gospel. She's never named in John's Gospel. Notice how she's named. The mother of Jesus. The mother of Jesus. Jesus is redefining this. Mary must approach Jesus the same way that you and I must approach Jesus. Now, moms, you tell me, how difficult would that have been? You see, Mary needs a Savior just as bad as we need a Savior. Now, I'm not saying Mary is just as bad as me. I know that not to be the case. Mary's a holy and pious woman and one to be adored. She's the blessed of all women. 
But in terms of Mary standing between us and Jesus, uh, this text and many other texts, we are never told to go to Mary in Scripture if we're trying to get to Jesus. In fact, we're never told to go to Mary at all. It's important that we understand. It's important we understand why. But how does Jesus' response? Notice Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. You know, you can scratch your head and say, okay, how does Jesus' response here pertain to this wedding situation that Mary has brought to Jesus? How does that, how does that work? Well, notice the word hour. He says, my hour has not yet come. Now, if you're familiar, if, you've, if you're reading John's gospel for the first time and you see this hour, it, it's going to intrigue you with some mystery. Wait, my hour has not yet come. What hour? And as you continue to read, you're going to discover as you go along. Uh, some of you have NIVs, and if the NIV kind of obscures that because it uses time instead of hour. Hora, the Greek word hora is... It can be translated time. It's not wrong, but it, it obscures that. I think hour is a better translation in this particular text. Uh, but here Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. I think it would do us well to just look at a couple of verses. Let's do it again. Chapter 7, verse 30. I know this feels a little more like a Bible study, but we are studying our Bibles. John chapter 7, verse 30. They're seeking to arrest Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because why? His hour had not yet come, right? Let's look at chapter 8, verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because why? Again, his hour had not come. Uh, 12.23 By the way, if you wanted the mystery to last, I'm ruining it for you. It's like the guy that you haven't seen the movie yet, and the guy tells, oh, it's a great movie, and he tells you how it ends, you know, before you get the chance to see it. But I imagine everyone here has read John's gospel at least once. Verse 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come. See, we have this suspense, if you will, his hour had not come, his hour had not come, his hour had not come. Verse 23, his hour come. Chapter 13, verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. And I think one of the most powerful places where it really grips your heart is in verse 1 of chapter 17. This is on the night that he's arrested. Jesus is praying. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. What is Jesus referring to? He's referring to his crucifixion. He's referring to the reason that he came. Now, he came for many reasons. This is one of the primary reasons, is to die on a cross for the sins of his people, right? So, back to chapter 2, verse uh, 4. Jesus responds to Mary, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Okay, how does this, we still haven't answered our question, how does this pertain to the problem at the wedding? How does this pertain to it? Well, if you're familiar with the prophets, and I think you have to be pretty familiar with the prophets to catch this, is that the prophets, when they are speaking of the Messianic age, 
when they are speaking of the days to come, if you will, when they're, when they're speaking of the consummation, if you will, uh, the time of the Savior, if you will, however you want to word it, they often express this in poetry, right? And some of the poetry that is used is the figure of wine flowing abundantly. Wine flowing abundantly. Let me show you what I mean. Take a look at Jeremiah. We get a glimpse of it in Jeremiah's prophecy. I'll just take you through a couple more passages. And what I like about this, I always liked it when someone would explain one of these to me because you, you read through some of this stuff. We are not very good in our culture at reading poetry anyways. And if you ever read through some of these uh, places where there's a lot of poetry and you, you just don't have any idea, what, what's that about? Have you ever had that problem? Um, so it's nice to look at some of this and begin to get it explained. If you look at Jeremiah 31, verse 5, speaking of a time of restoration, if you will, Jeremiah 31, verse 5, again, you shall plant what? Vineyards on the mountains of Samaria, and the planters shall plant and enjoy the fruit. It's easy to just cruise right on past that, isn't it? Now, turn towards, you turn, turn right, if you will, past Lamentations, past Ezekiel, past Daniel, to Hosea. Hosea 14 and verse 7. Hosea 14, verse 7. Again, speaking of this time, Hosea says, chapter 14, verse 7, they shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Here's this idea of wine again, if you will. Um, and if you go past Joel to Amos, Amos, I think Amos is the one, I think it's most clearly in Amos's very last part of chapter 9. In fact, I'm going to read, I almost chose this as an Old Testament reading this morning. Amos 9, verse 11 and following, Amos says, In that day I'll raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. See, it's speaking prophetically into the future of a time of restoration. Verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all of the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Look at verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all of the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruits. You see the imagery that's going on here? The joy and blessing of the Messianic age is being expressed in the terms of wine flourishing, not just wine, but grain. Uh, to, to an agrarian culture, this is, this is a blessing, a major blessing. Time of joy, time of prosperity, time of blessing, if you will, being expressed in these terms. Now, with all of this running in the background, let's go back to John chapter 2. Jesus 
Mary comes to Jesus says they have no wine. In other words, do something. Do something. And Jesus says, woman. So my, this is, there's a little bit of a rebuke there. Hold on. He's referring to her in a formal way. He's redefining this thing. He's, this is his first miracle in his ministry. He's beginning his earthly ministry. And he's redefining this relationship with Mary. And he says, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. And with that prophecy and the running in the background, I think we begin to understand what he's on about, don't we? His hour has not yet come. He has not yet been crucified, raised, glorified. The Messianic age has not begun. It's not yet time for wine to begin flowing. Does that make sense? Furthermore, what about the symbol of a wedding? We are at a wedding. And how about the symbol of the wedding? Jesus uses the wedding. The wedding symbol is used in the New Testament abundantly, isn't it? In fact, I chose Psalm 80 because of the, the imagery of a vine where the people of God are referred to as a vine. And the imagery of a wedding is used. Uh, we could think of the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22 or the parable of the ten virgins, which takes place in the context of a wedding in Matthew 25. But how about Revelation 19, which we read earlier in the service? Namely, verse 9, it says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Do you see how embedded this text is with symbolism and prophetic expectation? That's all running in the background as Mary, it's running in the background in Jesus' mind as Mary comes to him and says, We're out of wine. We're out of wine. Now we understand why Jesus says, well, my hour has not yet come. And, you know, I, I mentioned Matthew Henry last, last week. I, I, you know, I gleaned this from him this week. You know, Ma Matthew Henry, after developing it, he also takes that position that Jesus is rebuking Mary. And after doing that, he admires Mary for the way she responds to this rebuke. She responds in faith in verse 5. What does she do? His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Responds in faith. Do whatever he tells you. Again, Mary under, is undergoing this difficult reality that she must approach Jesus differently than she's ever approached Jesus. Moms, I think you probably understand this better than any of us. Now, let's look at verse 6. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. It's easy for us to miss this because, you know, I mean, could anyone write off all of the various purification rites of the Old Testament? Um, that, that would be hard to do, wouldn't it? But in this particular time, there was all of these, there was this battery of purification rites and here are these stone jars. And these stone jars, were the purpose of them was to hold the water that would be used for washing utensils, for washing hands. Some of these purification rites were prescribed by Moses, but many others actually were the manufacturer of men. They're just the manufacturer of men, where people were just inventing these things and doing these things. And here, uh, here are these large stone jars 
Uh, we're told that they could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Uh, there are six of them. And Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. And we're told in verse 7, they filled them up all the way to the brim. And then Jesus said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Now, I will confess for many years of reading this text, I, I believed it went like this. They filled up the jars, and then Jesus performed a miracle and turned the water that was in the jars into wine, and they began to draw the wine out of the jars, right? Does that make sense? There's another possible interpretation of this that I find to be very interesting, and it goes like this. It's, it's, it's speaking of the word, if you look in your text, the word for draw, verse 8, draw some water, or draw out and take it, if you will. Now draw some out and take it. The word draw, the word draw often refers to not drawing from a jar. It can refer from drawing from a jar. So I don't want to push this too hard, but I think this is interesting. Not just drawing from a jar, but actually it's more often used drawing from a well. Now, if that's the case, what's going on is they've filled up the purification jars and the servants are still continuing to go to the well and they're drawing wine from the well. well I just throw that out there. You, I, I, I've been toying with that and Think that's the, I think that's the interpretation I'm going to take on this from now on. But again, either way, it's not going to change the meaning of this. I think it does change the dynamic of it. What's the point of, the, of these um, water jars? The point of these water jars is to purify. Purify utensils. Purify uh, your hands. You know, the Pharisees washed their hands before they ate, and they rebuked Jesus and his disciples for not doing the same. That's an example of one of their manufactured uh, purification rites that they would do. And Jesus, it's interesting, these stone jars, he has these stone jars filled up. And I think by filling them up and just leaving them there, A purification jar that's full of water is one that hasn't been used, isn't it? Because as you use it, the water level goes down. And out of the well comes the new wine. The new wine. If you look at verse 10, now, either way, if you want to take it out of the jar, the same thing's still there. The dynamic's a little bit different, but let's suppose it's still coming out of the jar. Either way, there's something new coming out of that which is old, right? Now, in verse 9, the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, did not know where it come from. The servants knew, but the master of the feast calls the bridegroom over, and he says to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely... Then the poor wine. No, why would you do that? When people show up, their, their, their tastes are most sensitive. That's again, are there people over drinking at this place? Undoubtedly, people do that. You know, if you're going to throw a reception and there's going to be alcohol at it, someone's going to drink too much of it. I think that's a guarantee, isn't it? I'm not condoning that. Don't misunderstand me. But that's what's going to happen. 
But notice what he says here. What is he? What's the point of all this? The point of all this is the best wine that they've tasted thus far in this whole thing is the wine that Jesus has provided, isn't it? That's very clearly. That's very, very clearly uh, what's going on. And then in verse 11, we're, we're finally told what the purpose of all this is. This, the first of his signs. You see the word signs? Signs. Signs are meant to reveal. You know, you, you come up upon a sign. Um, a sign might say, you know, uh, Junction 60 ahead or something. What's that telling us? It's revealing to us that the intersection of whatever road we're on and Route 60 is about to, is about to approach. Signs reveal. Signs are revealed. What is being revealed? Jesus' glory. That's what's being revealed. You see, that's what this is about. Jesus' glory. We're used to these signs. I mean, we, you know, I talk about signs whenever we come to the Lord's table, which hopefully we'll be able to do next month. Uh, we're talking about it. We've talked about it. Some things have changed since we talked about it. But hopefully we'll be able to do that. Um, we'll see. But what is, what is the Lord's Supper? By sensible signs... They reveal, right? They reveal. In fact, we have baptism. We have the Lord's Supper. How we so misunderstand these rites? Because too much of the time, we take these rites to be about what we do. There is an aspect about these signs that speak to what we do. That's not the major aspect of these signs. These signs are about what God promises to do. You go back in the Old Testament with the Passover, if you put the blood, you sacrifice the lamb, you put the blood on the lentil, God promised to pass over the occupants of the house. This is about what God's promising. Circumcision, same thing. Circumcision by the, uh, uh, the surgical procedure of putting off the foreskin, that's putting off, uh, putting off sin. And it was a sign of entry into the covenant of grace. There's also a sign of regeneration. Jeremiah uses it that way in his prophecy, that circumcision was a sign of regeneration. Again, we don't regenerate ourselves. God regenerates us. It's pointing to what God does. When you go to the New Testament, what do we have in the New Testament? You have the Lord's Supper replacing Passover. You have baptism replacing Circumcision. The bloody rites of these, two, of these two sacraments give way to a non-bloody rite, both instituted by Christ, both using signs. What is the purpose of the signs? To reveal something. Water baptism. In baptizing a person, it's a sign of what God promises to do. God promises that if, our, if we put our faith and trust in Christ Jesus, He promises to wash us clean, does He not? Right? He promises to wash us clean. If your faith and your trust is in Christ Jesus this morning, He has washed you clean. He has atoned for your sins. You are clean. In fact, you can't get any cleaner. You're as clean as you can get. Because when God looks at you, He doesn't see... You know, we, we, we think what God looks at us, He sees all the mess that we're in. But no. God looks at us at that point. If our faith and trust is in Christ Jesus, He sees the perfection of Jesus on us. We are actually clothed in His perfection and His righteousness. 
Baptism is a sign of that. Now you see from that, signs don't only just reveal, but they strengthen faith. Oh, how does that strengthen? Especially when we have really blown it. When we have really, really blown it. You see, if you think baptism's all about what you're doing and you've blown it, you're not going to get any strength out of that. In fact, you're going to want to go be rebaptized. But if you understand this correctly and you've really blown it, then you're going to repent and you're going to see God's promises in a whole new light. I have been washed. Lord, you have washed me. In fact, you washed me knowing that I would commit what I just committed. Yeah. Yeah. If your faith and your trust is in Christ Jesus, yes, past, present, future, you're clean. You're clean. No one is really going to make a lot of progress with their vice list until they understand that. Amen? You really won't. You really won't. We have to understand that. How clean are you before the holy and righteous Father? If you're in Christ Jesus, you're clean. He knows what's around the next corner. Christ has taken care of that. This will serve, actually, to intensify the pain of these, of these sins, actually. But it also serves to intensify just who Jesus is and what He has done for us. See, this is grace. If you're hearing this for the first time, you're thinking to yourself, what? I never heard this before. Well, I would counsel you to continue to keep meditating on it and meditating on it. You see, if you look at verse 11 here, this first of His signs Jesus did at Canaan in Galilee... He manifested His glory, okay? The signs reveal His glory. And His disciples believed in Him. Their faith is strengthened. They're already believing in Him. That's why they've followed Him up to the wedding. We saw that in chapter 1 where they embraced Him and began to believe in Him. Is their faith perfect? Faith perfect? No, it's weak in many ways. We're going to see it as we go along. Is their understanding of Jesus perfect? No, it's imperfect. But here they see the sign. It reveals His glory. It strengthens their faith. Does that make sense? Now, let me close just with one application. I do this on purpose because I don't want to cloud this. Maybe we just leave with one application here because I think this is such an important application. I think it's one that we... That we um, we so badly need to try to digest, not just today, but every day. Whenever we sin and we have blown it, what do we have a tendency to do? We have a tendency to just think, I'm not going to do this again. Right? Lord, I'm not going to do this again. After a whole battery of, I can't believe I did this, Lord. I can't believe I did this. I can't believe I acted this way. I can't believe that 
I behave this way after all you've done for me. I can't believe that I'm still like this. As long as I've walked with you, I have no excuse. This is, this is abhorrent behavior. I'm not going to do this again. How's that been working out? How's that work out? I mean, even if some of us maybe are very strong-willed, and we can say, you know what, from now I'm never going to do it again. We never do it again. But what about the inside? Let's think about the purification jars because they're important in this. The purification jars contain water, and where did the water go? <laughs> it went on the outside, didn't it? We attempt to reform our lives in our own strength. As we say to the Lord, all right, Lord, I'm going to do better next time. I'm going to get this. I have no excuse for this. I'm going to do better next time. What makes us think that we can do better next time in and of our own strength? Our track record? Quite frankly, my track record gives me no confidence that I'm not just going to keep doing it again and again and again and again. Especially when I continue to go past the new wine and go to the purification jar and dip out of the purification jar and wash myself. It's a prayer I've been meditating on for some time now, a little while back. It's from the Valley of Vision, this little book of prayers. It's a wonderful little book. Actually, my mom bought this for me. I put a date in it. Uh, I know that's trivial. Forgive me. It was on my 37th birthday. She bought this for me, 2004. It's a great little book. And in one section of it, it's entitled Reliance. <laughs> what a title. And here we're going to see that this, this has been a problem for a long time. Whoever's praying, the prayers are anonymous. At the beginning, it tells you where the prayers come from. It comes from a number of, of uh, old preachers. But it starts this way. My Father, when Thou art angry towards me for my wrongs, I try to pacify Thee by abstaining from future sin. What's He saying? I'm going to do better next time, Lord. I try to pacify you by abstaining from future sin. Should we abstain from future sin? Don't misunderstand me. Absolutely. Should we endeavor after new obedience? Yes. That's not what we're talking about here. He says, I try to pacify you by abstaining from future sin, but teach me I cannot satisfy your law. That's the problem we have. That's why Jesus came. You see, Jesus can satisfy His law with His perfect righteousness. But if we say we're going to do better next time, if we're suggesting with that that we are going to satisfy God's law in the future, then we are deceived. 
And what we are saying is, Lord, step aside. I've got this from now on. I cannot satisfy your law that this effort is a resting in my righteousness. We don't think of it that way, do we? That only Christ's righteousness, ready-made, already finished, is fit for that purpose. You see what he's saying here? Lord, your righteousness is perfect. It's already been proven so with the resurrection. What's the resurrection proof? Jesus is without sin. Otherwise, he needs a Savior, doesn't he? The resurrection proves And that is the perfect righteousness. You see, that's the righteousness that we need. That perfect righteousness that Jesus is offering us for being good little boys and girls. No, for admitting that we're bad little boys and girls and discarding of our own righteousness and calling on Him for His so that we can be clothed, right? with pure linen. He goes on, he says, your chastening me for my sin is not that I should try to reform. I've been hanging on that line. I've been hanging on that line for a little while. You're disciplining me. Let, Let me put it in other words. Your disciplining of me for my sin is not teaching me that I should try to reform my own life. I could paraphrase it that way. But that's precisely what we're tempted to do, isn't it? No, that's not the reason. The reason is I may become more humbled, afflicted, and separated from sin by being reconciled and made righteous in Christ by faith. In other words, what do we do when we've blown it? We don't go back to the pure, the stone jars of purification, we run to Jesus. You really can run to Jesus. He will receive you. His arms will be wide open. He saw in plain view what we've done. And what will happen as we run into His presence and we experience His grace in pardoning us for whatever it is, what we will experience in then and there will be grace that will set us up for being further away from that sin that we've committed. Does that make sense? If we could see Jesus right in front of us, right beside us, Riding in the car. In fact, let's go with riding in the car. That's where we sometimes commit some of our harshest sins of speech, isn't it? If Jesus is in the car with you, if he was there and you could see him physically, I can guarantee if someone pulls out in front of you, you would treat them differently than when you forget his presence altogether. I'm just trying to think of ways to explain this. Something new has come. That's the point of this story. 
Something new has arrived. The old is passing by. The new has come. Now let me put it even more specifically. Someone has come. And that someone is Christ Jesus. John chapter 20, verse 30. We see the word signs. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in His name. Heavenly Father, oh, You are a great God. You are a great God. And You have given us a Savior that is incomprehensibly good. And You have given us the privilege by giving us faith that we may look to Him, that we may be in Him, that we may be brought into a union with Him by faith. And He has taken, oh Jesus, You have taken our sins away. And it is by faith that we, that we come to You, and through the channel of faith we receive all of the blessings that the gospel has to offer. And we so thank You, O oh Lord. Please forgive us for running to those old water jars of purification. They're so easy for us. It's so easy for us to pull the lid off and dip in. It's so easy for us to want to try to atone for our own salvation, atone for our own sins. Oh, Lord, may this story in Cana change us from now on. That the old is passing away and the new has come and we see Your glory. And as we see this sign, may it reveal to us this aspect of Your character and may it strengthen us. May it not just reveal to us information, but may it strengthen us in our faith as all of your signs, whether it be circumcision or the Passover or baptism or the Lord's Supper, all of these signs, Lord, we see in your way are given for us to reveal, to reveal aspects of your character, your beloved character, and to strengthen us in the faith of the same. Oh, Father, strengthen us. And bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.